We're in that section of Ephesians 5 where we're addressing particular uh, life circumstances of Christians, whereby we seek to understand how it is that we are to apply the doctrine of the first three chapters into our daily lives, and here specifically into uh, relations that come to us in specific circumstances, and this circumstance being of marriage, and even more specifically, of husbands to wives. It's here that we see that the Spirit addresses the earthly reality of the exalted Christ through the lives of his children. In the first part of this chapter, Paul had addressed general precepts, referring to the Christian life as a walk. And now here in verse 21, through the first part of chapter 6, he turns the more specific life situations that Christians will find themselves in. And then at the end of the epistle, he turns to what I've titled as the heavenly reality of the exalted Christ, in that we don't only have a Savior who aids us in our earthly relations, but we have a Savior who then aids us in our heavenly relations, our, our heavenly battles. And so we are seeing that these interactions, these earthly interactions, are to be adorned with spirit-filled subjection. That the spirit works to fill us up and Christ works to grow his body as we relate to each other appropriately. Thus submission, respect, and obedience must be addressed as self-sacrifice, discipline, and leadership must also be considered. And these give shape and texture to the sort of relationships within which we live together. Follow along as I read for us Ephesians chapter 5 beginning in verse 21 through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. And be subject to one another in the fear of, of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present himself to the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless." So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even has himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and seek your help as we come before your word, which is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. And by your will, it is able to pierce between body and soul. 
Help us, Lord. Help us that we may be conformed to the image of Christ this morning, being renewed in our knowledge of his redemption, as well as being enlivened to live according to his will. We thank you, Lord, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we did with, uh, or as I did with uh, my sermon the last time I was before you as we addressed wives being subject to our husbands, we will do so this morning as husbands are to love their wives under these four headings of difficulty, definition, design, and direction. As we address this idea of difficulty, it is uh, important or it, it falls on the same pattern as we did last time that we would understand that some of the difficulty here in this use of marital language comes because our earthly marriages are often or they are imperfect. That the problem, as uh, Patrick O'Banion says, is not merely that we have too low a view of marriage, but also that we have set the bar of our expectations for marriages too high. We place too heavy a burden upon the union by expecting our spouse to satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. The biblical mandate that calls a husband to love his wife as his own body, giving himself up for his bride as Christ loved the church, and that calls a wife to submit to her husband as to Christ, offers a rather different perspective, such that we would see that as it relates to a difficulty in our passage this morning, is that we are very much subject to the uh, influence of society and culture's definition of love upon us. We are subject to the influence of society's and culture's perversion of headship or authority upon our marriages, and such should also such we would find also with love, which is the second part of our difficulty the degrading of marriage and manhood within the world and specifically within American culture. Time does not permit me, nor does prudence warrant, a lengthy treatment of all that has transpired in the last 50 years or more to distort or malign a husband's place in the family. But suffice to say that abuse of headship in this fallen age have clouded the understanding and application of this passage. We, I only need to remember most of, if, if not all of, the sitcoms that I was accustomed to watching growing up, where the husband, though in some uh, passe way or some word-only uh, way, was given a place of prominence in the family, but he was, for the most part, a bumbling idiot. He was constantly prone to mistakes, which the mom had to come in and clean up, or if, if there wasn't a mom, the parents or the children would come in and correct the father, that there was no place of the ideal husband. And I understand that art should imitate reality or art imitates life, but we also find that life often imitates art. And so we have God's good word here to tell us what husbands ought to be. And we may think of abuse in the headship arena. We often think of dominance. As it relates to authority of the husband, we think of abuse of that authority, we think primarily of dominance and tyranny. And though that is 
uh, and has and does surely exist in homes it sh and should also be denounced and shown to be contrary to scripture, I believe that there's another abuse that also needs to be addressed, then that is one of passivity. I agree with this commentator and found his illustration helpful also, so I give it to you in full quote. Husbands who may use headship as an excuse for passivity in their marriages. Those husbands who will not expend the effort to do anything responsible in their homes may claim they are exercising the prerogatives of headship, but they are in fact abandoning their biblical role. Abdication of responsibility is more common than domination. A friend of my wife once reported, and this is the author's uh, experience, and, the, and this friend of his wife once reported that my husband hasn't made a decision regarding our family in two years. He doesn't decide how to discipline the children. That's left to me. He never consults me about taking out-of-town work assignments. He comes and goes seemingly without any regard for my feelings or the children's needs. They don't even know him. All he does is come home from time to time and break our routine before leaving again. I don't have three children. I have four. We see that uh, that may be true of us, maybe not to that ex ex extreme, but we must be uh, cognizant that we, as husbands, may not all already only be prone to domination, but we may be prone to passivity. And finally, we struggle, a difficulty we have, is that we struggle to keep the intended significance in view. Our earthly marriages only make sense when our union with Christ remains in view. They are to point away from themselves. Our marriages are to point away from themselves. And the delicious irony, as one commentator says, is that ultimately we can only understand and fully enjoy our earthly marriages when we view them in light of our spiritual marriage. So my intent this morning is to see the beauty of the role of husbands in light of its intended, intended reference to Christ and the church. That a husband's love is to be as self-denying and, and objectively directed as Christ's love for the church. For as the Spirit of Christ says elsewhere, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I have nothing, or I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So it behooves us to understand what then is love. If husbands are to love their wives, we must have an understanding of what love is. And there's actually, I think I gave three difficulties. There's a fourth difficulty this morning is that there is so much more to say about marriage. There's so much more to say about husbands loving their wives than I will say this morning. And so the difficulty is, is that you must understand that God's word is a deep well, as deep as as the mind of God, and we can never probe its depths. And so this morning, as deep as we will go, we will not 
even begin to make progress. And so this difficulty comes largely upon me. And so as I find understanding a definition of love, I'm going to address it under only three headings. That a definition of love, especially coming out of our passage this morning, is that love is to be self-sacrificial. This love, this type of self-sacrifice, as we will see applied to husbands, is actually the love that we're supposed to have for one another. That we're supposed to lay down our lives for each other. That, that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to love each other as Christ has first loved us. Paul has said as much earlier on in this epistle. Christ said as much when he spoke to his disciples. So this definition of love is that it's self-sacrificial. The second thing is that it's sanctifying. That love is supposed to uh, uphold truth. It's to seek truth. It's also to seek the good in the other, in the one loved. That we are supposed to seek their good above all else. And as we'll see that applied to husbands, we're going to see that it is above even ourselves as husbands that we are to seek a sanctifying love of our, to our wives. Finally, this definition of love and this love comes specifically and uniquely to marriage is that it's a single flesh love. Though we are to self-sacrificially love one another, that we are to sanctifyingly love one another, the single flesh love is reserved for man and wife. And we find that that answer comes very naturally to us in our passage. It is because of the unique picture of marriage and being Christ and the church. So we may even consider it the verse that we all know well and the world even knows well to a certain extent. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, there are men, there's much ink spent on what is meant in John's gospel as the world. But there is a love that God has for his creation in general. There is also a love of specific that from heaven he came and sought her that God has for his people, that Christ has for his bride. So is the same in the marriage union that a man is to love his wife unlike he loves any other woman, unlike he loves any other person, he is to love his wife, forsaking all, as the marriage vows often say, um, for her. So this definition of love being self-sacrificial, sanctifying, and single flesh, we first look at self-sacrificial love, self-sacrificial, self-mortifying love. I like to use that word mortifying because we hear self-sacrificial and we think victimization or we think uh, some sort of victimhood or uh, even passivity. That we think of uh, Christ's passive obedience, that he, 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 he gave his, he was obedient even unto death. And so then we transfer that and think that it's the same passivity that we should come into our marriage, that we're just to be rolled over, that we're just to give in because we're supposed to love our wives. No, this sacrificial love is self-mortifying in that it has an aim. It has a target. That target usually is ourselves and denying ourselves as we should. 
but it's a love that seeks life through death, death of our sin and life for our wives. So to be self-sacrificial, lovingly our wives, is to mortify our flesh, is to mortify our desires that are contrary to God's will first and foremost. And through that, we love our wives. And through that, it says that in a way, we love our wives and give them life, such in the same way Christ's death has given us life. And so we also see that this death of our sins and life for our wives is edifying. It's a building up. Our self-sacrificial love to our wives is to build them up in the Lord. It says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. And this consummated reality, no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That she would be built up. Here, this self-sacrificial love Michael Allen says husbands should wield that authority because again this comes in the authority structure of the home that husbands are the head wives are to submit so husbands should wield that authority not to use others for their benefit to, but to bless others by their self sacrifice that our love in being self sacrificial is we should always seek to benefit our wives in our decisions an authority structure, as I said, does exist. However, the execution of that authority should be characterized by love. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 4, Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act becomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Consider that as self-sacrificially loving your wife, that you don't seek your own. You're not easily provoked. You do not take into account a wrong suffered. This self-sacrificing love. And again, these, these, this definition of love are these ideas or categories of this definition of love are not mutually exclusive. So we see that self-sacrificing love plays into sanctifying love. Sanctifying love plays into self-sacrificial because to sanctify is to mortify the flesh and enliven, be enlivened by the spirit. As the head guides the body towards good places, so the husband is to guide his wife toward good things for the analogy here the typology here is christ and the church and christ being the head of the church leading the church to green pastures to still waters to places of rest to good things so the husband is to sanctify his wife by leading her to good places also and this requires wisdom Wisdom, as I've said in the past, the definition I like of wisdom or an understanding of wisdom is that we are able to assign proper value to things so that we may prioritize to the good higher 
than the less lesser good. We certainly want, wouldn't want to prioritize anything not good. And so our first instinct here should not be, as we think about sanctifying love, should not be toward finding fault in what needs correction in our wives. Our first instinct as we read this is we're to wash her in the word or we're to sanctify her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, is not that we become our wives' Holy Spirit, that we now are to go on sin-finding missions so that we may sanctify our wives. No, our sanctification of our wives or our sanctifying love for our wives is that we encourage where we see true inner beauty. So instead of finding fault that needs correcting, we are to encourage where we see true inner beauty. Again, we find the relationship between husband and wife is distinctly set apart here in Scripture between children and parents. For our children, we, are, we ought to correct. We ought to see the patterns of their decisions or the patterns of their actions that can lead to more grotesque sins and call them out and seek to correct them and watch them and guide them and disciple them. Not so with our wives. Not that we should never help our wives see places where they erred or that we should never correct our wives where they need correcting. But we don't guide our wives as we guide our children. We guide our wives with a self-sacrificing love, with an, with an object of sanctification. And so we encourage where we see true inner beauty. It's where we find that uh, eventually when we talk about this same flesh love, we find that it is because they are our own bodies. And it says here that what do we do with our own bodies? We nourish and cherish our bodies. And so with our wives as we sanctifying love them, we are to nourish and cherish them. Alan again says, in this case, a husband's preferences ought to be the first to go, as needful for the sake of blessing his wife and seeing her grow and flourish in holiness. Do you see the, the, the relationship between self-sacrificing love and sanctifying love that our preferences, the husband's preferences are the first that ought to go as needful for the sake of blessing his wife and seeing her grow and flourish in holiness? If we are to seek our wives' holiness, we must do so upon our knees. It's something that uh, is not directly in our passage this morning, but comes through the manifold witness of Scripture, as we will see. But if we are to seek our wife's holiness, the first place we are to seek it is upon our knees. The second place we are to seek it is in the mortification of our f flesh. And only then will we seek it in helping them understand ways in which they erred. The Apostle Peter thought it obvious that a husband would pray for his wife, such that when he wrote his letter to, to those churches, he wrote to them and, and warned them that, that they are to consider their wives in such a way, so that when they consider their wives this way, that their prayers are not hindered. He doesn't say pray for your wives. The assumption there is that you are praying for your wife. 
You are seeking her good before the Lord. And so one of the greatest and possibly most undervalued privilege of being married to a Christian, and listen to me, young people, as you come to profess faith in the Lord, your parents and this church is going to encourage you to marry in the Lord. Because one of the greatest, most undervalued privileges of being married to Christian is that you will be prayed for every day of your marriage. Let that be a conviction upon my heart and maybe a conviction upon your heart when those days go prayerless for our wives or we fail to have that sanctifying love for our wives. And this all being shaped and finding reference or coherence in a single flesh love. This understanding that metaphysics shapes ethics. Intentionally kept these words in here so that we would understand that metaphysics pertains to first principles, pertains to reality. Not just material, we're not talking about material reality and atoms and how those things are, but how things are in reality. What makes a thing a thing? What is its essence and accidents, substance and accidents? These, these terms are used to understand metaphysics. And so if you come to an understanding of reality, this will shape your ethic, how you act. And so here the declaration that man and woman are one, a man and a woman, a husband and wife are one, has consequences for our behaviors. For we see this here in the flow of the first marriage. For Adam, when he sees Eve, when Eve is brought to him, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. Adam is recognizing that they are flesh and flesh and bone of bone. They are the same kind. He's not saying they are one. He's saying, I love her as a woman. But then the very next verse, the Spirit's commentary on the history of the world. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This one flesh love. We were helped in our men's and women's groups when we read Studies in Self-Denial. And I was especially helped when the author made a point to show that husbands are to consider their wives as their own bodies and treat them as such, such that we are to think of them as our own minds, in that we would not mentally abandon our wives that we would not mentally abandon our wives, that we would include them in our whole lives. He gave the example that when a wife asks her husband, how was your day? And our response is, oh, it's all right. Now, sometimes that's all I can muster if I have to admit and confess to you. But may we try harder to consider our wives who have interacted their whole 
more than likely their whole day with, with their children lovingly and trying to guide them and, and bear with them, not only dealing with their own selves and their own flesh, so that when you come home, they want to interact with another adult, not just another adult, but their own husband. And so we see them as our own bodies when we engage with them mentally and intelligibly and so that we would have a single flesh love that we see them as ourselves not a part of us she's not my better half she is me and I am her it is God's will that the bond of love between married folks should be preferred before all other bonds that the note the knot of marriage might be more surely knit and the delight of love thence resulting should be the greatest and most perfect the same flesh love is one that prioritizes the relationship of your wife above all other relationships so that in the same way you prioritize your own selves naturally above all others so you would hold your wives in the same accord this definition of love being self-sacrificial being sanctifying and being single flesh comes to us with design what is the design? Again, the testimony of Scripture is manifold that husbands, in Colossians 3.19, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. 1 Peter 3, you husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. And again, we do well to remind ourselves as to the reason for the focus on husbands loving their wives. Again, it's husbands love your wives not because their greatest need is, is or their design for you to love them and, and your design to be respected by them. But I think it's because in light of our fallen natures and infirmity that the husbands uh, are prone now because of the fall to not love their wives that the fall has caused us to disorder all relations in our lives first our relation to god then our relation to our wives our relation to other uh humans and certainly our relation even to creation itself and two-way streets in that way the husband's place in marriage was one that prior to the fall was kept in sinless delight, being the perfect head to his wife, wherein there was no lack of love. Adam's problem after the fall was not that his wife would seek to usurp his authority. Adam's problem after the fall was primarily that he would not seek to love his wife. And it is the exhortation of the apostle because of sin's attack upon this blessedness. The sin's attack upon what Adam had prior to the fall in his marriage was one of blessed, blessedly loving his wife in all the ways that we said this morning and even beyond. For he would to love his wife as Christ loved 
the church because that is the exemplar. Next time I'm able to preach before you, we're going to look at the exemplar. We're, we're starting in the flesh. We'll get to the spirit then. But we must see that the plan for Christ to come and redeem a people, to go and gather a bride to himself came before God said, let there be light. And so, husbands are to love our wives. Adam is to, was to love Eve as Christ loved the church because God's love or Christ's love for the church came before. And they are, we are a pattern. We are a shadow. We are a type of that. Again, we read in Genesis 3.16 that the fall would cause men to lord his authority over his wife. The phrase, he shall rule over you, and the parallel wording uh, in 4.7 suggests that his desire would be to dominate. The marriage ordinance continues, but is frustrated by the battle of the sexes, as I said last time. And so we are reminded of Christ's words to the disciples that if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Husbands, love your wives as your own body. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wolfgang Musculus, I'm quoting him mainly because I like his name, but he also has some important things to say. He says, someone may ask, what is the point of telling men to love their wives when men love women by natural instinct? My answer is that Paul did not say men love women, but men love your wives. It is one thing to love a woman as a woman and quite another to love her as a wife. The first of these things is naturally present in men. It's also naturally present in creation where we see... Uh, uh, male species instinctively attracted to or following or going after the female species. The first of these is naturally present in men, but the second is not. Our corrupt nature does not sit well with the divine order that requires the lawful love of our wives. Therefore, only pious men who fear God can really love their wives because they are wives who have been united to them by God. Those who think like this do not look for subjection in their wives or claim their right to have power over them, but concentrate rather on God's commandment and the indissolvable fellowship of married life. You see where the uh, source of this, the design of this, is not that we would look for the subjection in our wives, that we would claim this as our right as a husband, to be the head and to have authority. That we first look to God's commandment, God's law, and the indissolvable fellowship of married life. If we think about that, we can see that there's a good reason for the apostle to tell men to love their wives. Our corrupt flesh is always hankering after what is forbidden and desiring what it cannot have. And so we are more inclined to love others. He says, more specifically, we're inclined to love other people's wives and not our own. Brothers, we must guard our hearts that we would not be so in our marriages. And this not is a, not a one-time commitment, but this is a daily dying 
to ourselves. We see also the design not just in that husbands ought to love their wives because of the fall, but also because we see it in the design of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. That it was not good for man to be alone. And so Eve was said to be a comfort. So he who finds a wife, Proverbs 18.22, finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Again, Husbands, the design of you having a wife is the design of the Lord, and it comes from the Lord, and so you are to love them because of those realities, so that as he brought you together, you should not tear it apart in thought, word, or deed. And as there is none suitable in all of creation, she was said to be a help. Oh, that the Lord looked upon Adam and said, he needed comfort and help of his own kind. You cannot look in any other place of creation for the help and comfort you may receive from your wife. Proverbs 19:14 House and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. If you have a wife, it is from the Lord. You have a good thing. You have obtained favor from the Lord. You have an inheritance-like thing from the Lord. So husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. Finally, it's important as we consider this uh, idea of love, husbands loving their wives, and, and, and we saw it in uh definition and then design and and now we look at the direction there are three things that i'll end with here this morning in direction first and blessed distinction ian hamilton says in an increasing amoral and anti-christian world christians convictions about the heterosexual binding nature of marriage will inevitably bring them into collision with lifestyles that promote self-indulgent hedonism i didn't look at the copyright date of this commentary but he's already at a date it, we're we're not just there we're not just almost there we are there but listen to what he says is that this collision will both be dangerous and rich in gospel opportunity faithful monogamous marriage is one of the essential god provided building blocks of societal cohesion as, a so, as social cohesion unravels, stable, faithful Christian marriages can function as salt and light, helping fulfill Jesus' command to his church to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Brothers, may we see us loving our wives as a gospel ordinance, as a gospel reality, that we love our wives to evangelize the lost. Also that we see it very clearly directed is that we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And so as we have been brought in this morning and, and been the, the bulk of my preaching this morning has been law, blessed law, 
law that only comes as we're enlivened by God. I'm not telling you to earn merit before God. I'm not telling you to earn your salvation. I'm not telling you to earn your sanctification. I'm telling you to live as those that have united to Christ. Live in your marriage with your wife as those who are one with Christ and one with their wives. But I'd be remiss to give you law and not give you gospel. And the passage does so for us because we're to love our wives just as Christ loved the church. Loved the church. Established love. Brian Chapel says, how can we live so? How can we sacrifice so? By recognizing that ultimately the resource provided for Christian husbands is not simply self-sacrifice, but Christ's sacrifice. We will have no resources to serve another if we're not sure of our standing in him. His love is our relational fuel. If you are running on empty, not filled with the knowledge of his love for you, then you will inevitably suck personal energy from the life of your marriage. Only when your hearts are brimming with the knowledge of his grace do we have the resources we need to maintain a Christian marriage. Brothers, look not to your ability to love sacrificially, to love sanctifyingly, to love as the same flesh, or to consider these things. First, look to Christ and his love for us, that he gave himself for us. He withheld nothing of himself, but he gave all. And so we are to love our wives, fueled by that reality. The final thing is that we are to love with this design or this directed to the glorious end. In verse 27, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Here, the apostle just leaves the flesh behind, embraces the consummated reality of the spiritual marriage that, that we look like, That's, I can't present my wife that way. There's no way for me to do that. And amen to that. You cannot. But patternly, you are to seek this and understand it. We read in 1 Peter 3, our husbands in the same way are to live with their wives in an understanding way. That they are to show honor as a fellow heir of the grace of of life that we love our wives because we share an inheritance with them we we love our wives to by God's grace and power usher them closer towards that inherited end that we are fellow heirs That we are fellow pilgrims in a foreign land. That we have given more, that we have been given more than a companion, but an extension of our bodies to double our efforts in this age. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we give you thanks. Many of us are able to partake in this blessing of marriage. We thank you, Lord, that you have strengthened us by your word this morning. I thank you, Lord, that this is, our marriages are but a picture of the glorious marriage 
of Christ in the church so that none can be without hope this morning. That whether we desire marriage or that may not be for us as according to your will, Lord, we have a marriage in Christ and that is glorious. And we thank you that you are bringing us to this consummated end where you will present us without spot and blameless to your glorious praise. We thank you and we pray these things in the name of the bridegroom. Amen.